And so this collapse in oil prices will not only impact, of course, global geopolitics, domestic U.S. politics, but will also turn on their head in many ways dynamics that we've accepted as immutable and and unshakable about the clean energy market as well, from electric vehicles to solar to wind to geothermal to biofuels and beyond. Unless you've been living under a rock, and even then, it's been pretty hard to miss the latest news. Coronavirus spreads, stock market crashes, oil prices plummet. What does it all have to do with climate and energy? A lot, actually. And we break it down in this episode of Political Climate, a bipartisan podcast on energy and environmental issues in America and around the world, presented by the USC Schwarzenegger Institute. I'm Julia Piper, a contributing editor at Green Tech Media and a senior fellow with the Atlantic Council. My co-hosts Brandon Hurlbutt and Shane Skelton are out this week, but not because they're sick. Don't worry. But speaking of which, as the coronavirus continues to spread around the globe, it appears that the side effects include stunning declines in both stocks and oil prices. On Monday, oil prices had their worst day since the 1991 Gulf War, tumbling 24% to around $34 per barrel. This came after Saudi Arabia and Russia clashed last weekend over how to set production levels. The price decline was also fueled by sinking oil demand as the coronavirus wreaks havoc on the global economy. Factories sit idle, major events have been called off, flights have been canceled, and as I record this, President Trump has just announced a 30-day ban on travel to all countries in Europe, save for the United Kingdom. So there's a lot going on, to say the least. So how do we get here? And what does the combination of rock-bottom oil prices and the coronavirus mean for clean energy? I put those questions to David Livingston, who focuses on energy and global macroeconomics at the political risk consultancy Eurasia Group. I started by asking him how exactly the latest oil price war got started. But first, a brief message from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you with support from EarthX, a nonprofit environmental forum that aims to educate and inspire action toward a more sustainable future. EarthX recently launched the EarthX League community, where you can interact with other members, ask questions, read news, and sign up for the 50 for 50 challenge to test how many actions you can take to protect the planet. Here at Political Climate, we're taking on the task. And on the line, I have Andrew Robinson. He's our associate producer here at the show. Andrew, I know you've been looking at this list. Uh, We're looking at the water one specifically this week. Did you find any of those challenging? Hey, Julia. One of the things that I was looking at at the top of the list is turning off the tap while brushing your teeth. And I think for me personally, I've always tried to do that. You know, easy to to flip it off, you know, while you're brushing, uh, use as little water as possible. And, you know, I figure that most people do that these days. I feel like that was something that was told uh, as a kid, pretty often growing up, uh, turn off the water. It's you know simple thing to do. But I've also found that some people don't do it, and it's almost like nails on a chalkboard for me. I'm like, how could you leave the water on while you're doing this task? It's so crazy, just watching it all go down the drain. So it's a good reminder, although it's an easier one. I agree. 
Another one on this list that I noticed was to compost and, you know, dispose of your food waste that way instead of in the garbage. Uh, I don't know. It's such a challenge I find for a lot of millennials like myself. And I think you who don't necessarily have full on yards or even the know-how of how to compost. I did a quick Google and there are more steps to it than I realized. I don't know. Have you ever tried it? I personally haven't tried it, but I've had conversations with my roommates about how difficult it is living in a city where there's not infrastructure in place to help you compost. So for us millennials, you know, maybe that's something that we're really interested in, something that should be easy to, you know, take an extra step to do. Uh, but when there's not a composting program set up in a city that you live in or a region, uh, it makes it a little bit harder because you have to go through a lot of extra steps to do it on your own. Yeah. So maybe the takeaway here is to compost on your own if you can. And if you can't, maybe start lobbying your local community to consider introducing a compost program. I grew up with one in Canada and it was so second nature once you had that little bit of infrastructure to make it possible. Yeah. Getting engaged in your local community to get those kinds of programs set up is a great idea. All right. Well, that's our attempt at taking on the 50 for 50 challenge this week. You can take on these challenges too. simply look up the EarthX League at EarthX.org. Again, this episode is brought to you by EarthX, a nonprofit environmental forum, and they're currently gearing up for the EarthX conference and expo taking place April 23rd to the 26th in Dallas, Texas. Organizers are closely reviewing all guidance from global, federal and local health authorities to implement what's needed for a good show in light of recent news. EarthX is committed to ensuring that its response during this challenging time is responsibly based on facts and not driven by fear. So check out the latest at earthx.org, sign up to attend, and we'll see you there. So for anyone following the news, they've probably noticed that oil prices are going a little crazy. Specifically, they're plummeting. We know that this had something to do with a negotiation between Saudi Arabia and Russia, and then things all kind of started to blow up. Can you walk us through, David, what the heck happened here? Yeah, exactly. So going into this year, the oil market was already in a bit of a structural oversupply, meaning there was simply more oil sloshing around in the world than there was demand for it, as demand was relatively weak. The coronavirus pandemic and the impacts it's had on the global economy have only worsened that. It's decreased uh, demand for oil as factories have shut down, economic activity has uh, ground to a halt in many cases. Of course, first in China, now in Italy, and spreading around the world with close to um, 150 countries affected by uh, uh, coronavirus. So what that has done is, of course, just decreased oil demand yet further and dragged the price of oil down with it. Now, this all comes amid, in the background, uh, a group of countries uh, in OPEC, the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries, the cartel, which, which sort of seeks to control oil supply uh, and, and thus to prop up prices and keep prices stable. OPEC and uh, a few other non-OPEC oil exporting countries, including Russia, most notably, have been trying to cut their oil supply in order to, again, stabilize prices. They had a meeting in Vienna, Austria, where the headquarters of OPEC is located last week to try and negotiate yet deeper oil production cuts, oil export cuts, in order to help balance the market further in the face of the coronavirus shock. They were unable to do so, um, largely because Russia came to the meeting uh, in a, a fairly... Um, truculent stance, a fairly obstinate stance of, of 
not wishing to cut production any further at all, and indeed not even agreeing to roll over the existing supply cut agreement uh, over into future months beyond the end of March. And so what that did is on Friday, we had a 10% collapse in the oil price, uh, one of the largest single-day moves uh, uh, on record. And we had over the weekend then, in response to the to the Russian position of not working at all towards some sort of new supply cut agreement, uh, the Saudis responded in kind over the weekend by opening the spigots, more or less, slashing prices by five, six, seven dollars for their oil uh, amongst all their global customers, indicating that they were going to ramp up production dramatically. And in fact, even indicating that they were going to increase their overall oil production capacity to a record of 13 million barrels per day, uh, while also just increasing the supply in the market, including pulling supply out of storage before they can even ramp up their actual production to the levels they've indicated in time. So it was really a move that was meant to tell Russia, here are the costs of your action. You want an oil market share war? We'll show you an oil market share war. Other producers have responded in kind. The United Arab Emirates has joined Saudi in increasing production. Russia, for its part, has indicated that it too plans to increase production. And so now not only have you resolved the uh, structural oversupply in the market that we entered the year with, not only have you not resolved the additional oversupply that comes because of the economic dislocations of coronavirus, but we now have a massive oversupply as all of these different oil, big oil producers around the world are competing for market share. And the, the, the victim of all this, of course, is the oil price, which has collapsed to levels not seen since 2014, 2015, when there was a similar oversupply in the oil market. And so this collapse in oil prices will not only impact, of course, global geopolitics, domestic U.S. politics, but will also turn on their head in many ways dynamics that we've accepted as immutable and and unshakable about the clean energy market as well, from electric vehicles to solar to wind to geothermal to biofuels and beyond. Yeah, I think I saw this meme or some image floating around the internet showing that the oil price per barrel is roughly equal to a KFC bucket of chicken these days. <laughs> That's so. exactly right. Yeah. Satsiki, uh, satsiki is uh, is now more expensive than oil um, <laughs> on an adjusted basis. Uh, and one you do need for the global economy, though the other is also hard to give up because it's pretty delicious. So it's kind of a it's a tough yes. call which one. <laughs> satsiki all the way. Yeah. So. So I want to get into the clean energy piece of it. I think that's really important. But first, I just want to fully understand Russia did not play along, as you noted. Why was that? Why would they want to accelerate and accentuate this oversupply issue? Because that, you know, pulls down prices as it is. And, you know, in theory, these these countries would like to be making more money off the oil they sell, although, although I know it's a dance of, of between selling more and, and selling at a higher price. Um, but why do you think Russia would not want to play along? And I'll just add that the U.S. oil and gas market feels like the elephant in the room here. Its role in global oil markets has changed in recent years and I think is uh, accelerating some of the other tensions that we're seeing, the oversupply you you referenced at the beginning. So talk a bit about what Russia is doing, why they're doing it, and where the U.S. fits in here. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Of course, the shale revolution in the United States has been one of the most fundamental uh, changes in the global oil market, in global geopolitics, 
of the past 20 years. And it's taken the United States from being a net gas importer and a net oil importer to in, in large degree uh, to being now not only a net gas exporter, but even a net oil exporter. The United States is on paper self-sufficient in oil. Now, of course, it still imports significant volumes of oil and exports even more significant volumes of oil uh, because of differences in crude oil quality and the like. But the point is the United States has become a much more powerful actor in the global oil market because of the advent of shale. And it's given it new, um, let's say, agency or freedom to act in the foreign policy sphere as well. So it's probably been more muscular with sanctions on the likes of Venezuela, on Russia, on Iran, etc., than it otherwise could have been if it were a massive net oil importer. Now, a lot of those sanctions, as I noted, have come down on Russia. And in particular, some of the more recent sanctions uh, are understood to have angered uh, Vladimir Putin and Russian leadership quite significantly. And, uh, and Russia was even uh, quoted earlier this year as saying that in response to some of the U.S. actions, the, Russia would respond in a way and at a time and place of its choosing. Now, some surmise that that explains the Russian action in Vienna last week, that this is that response. They've I, they found an opportunity where there was structural oversupply in the market, where everyone was expecting for them to play along and to continue cutting back their own production so that the oil market could balance. All the while, shale just continues to increase in the United States. U.S. shale production just continues to increase and basically gobble up all the market share, which is being vacated by the supply cuts being done by OPEC and Russia together. So um, some offer the interpretation that Russia decided enough is enough. And not only that, but we're in an environment in which financial conditions are very unstable. We've all seen the dramatic moves down uh, in the stock market recently, as well as the deterioration of conditions for um, uh, low quality credit, uh, so-called uh, high yield credit or junk bonds, which play an extremely large role in financing uh, the continued activity of shale drillers in the United States. So Russia probably said, oh, it might be even more difficult than usual for these shale drillers to finance themselves, given all the disruptions going on in global markets. Now, what if we also collapse the price of oil to a level where we're still able to produce, but shale producers come under significant amount of pressure, and maybe we can even force some bankruptcies and some significant economic dislocations in the United States? That is one interpretation of what Russia has tried to do here. What would be the other interpretation? Because I've seen some people say that's not a very coherent strategy because low oil hurts Russia too. That's right. Um, another, I mean, another interpretation is simply that they were looking for the upper hand in negotiations uh, with their partners in OPEC, and that this is basically a high stakes game of of chicken in the oil market, and they were expecting Saudi Arabia to blink and to perhaps offer some concessions or guarantees to Russia that would um, allow that would bring Russia in to the fold and get an OPEC plus agreement where OPEC and OPEC countries were really bearing the, the, the large burden of these additional supply cuts. Now, OPEC was ready to take on significant additional supply cuts, but they were conditioning it on Russia also taking part. Um, and so one interpretation is that this was simply uh, a negotiation tactic, which then went wrong. Each called one another's bluff, and they felt the need to follow through on their position. And so that's what resulted in this fallout. 
and now each has retrenched to some degree in their respective positions, and the oil market is suffering for it. Um, yet another uh, interpretation is that Vladimir Putin and some of the Russian leadership have not well understood or properly characterized the nature of Saudi decision making, the nature of the U.S. shale sector, and that um, some in, in his circle, such as Igor Sechin of Rosneft, uh, might have been kind of whispering in his ear recommendations for no longer playing ball with the uh, with OPEC and and essentially taking this stance that would crash the oil market in order for Rosneft and other Russian oil companies to expand their production. Now, in order for that to happen, they were they had to be hoping for this certain sweet spot of prices, which would be still above Russia's marginal cost of production and right around uh, the price needed for Russia to still be able to balance its budget uh, somewhere in the in the forty dollar per barrel range. Uh, by doing so, even if it didn't quite balance it, its budget, Russia would be able to dig into its its reserves. Uh, Saudi Arabia would be in a much worse spot because it has a much higher budget break even than Russia does. And so it would gain leverage against Saudi Arabia and also do some damage to the U.S. shale sector. But that's a sweet spot, which is very hard to hit. And arguably, in the in the days since the failed agreement uh, on Friday in Vienna, we've seen that prices have already collapsed to a point which threatens the very viability of uh, of Russian production, or at least of expanded Russian production because they're barely, barely, barely meeting their marginal cost of production. All right. Whoa. A lot there. Sounds like it's a very complicated set of you know, decisions and outcomes you'd be hoping for. Uh, a lot of this reminds me of being back in political science class in undergrad, though, of understanding your opponent and what they might do next and the nature of negotiations. That's absolutely right. So much of this is so much of this is really game theory at the end of the day. I think people, you know, think about this in static terms, but it's a dynamic game theoretic model. Uh, and everyone's trying to put themselves in the mind of the opponent, but it's it's quite difficult sometimes. And and when you get uh, miscalculations uh, it, at speed and scale, as you've had over the past several days, it can cause these sorts of collapses in the oil market. I know. And telecommuting is only going to make that communication worse. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> Okay, but the the thing that's interesting here is then the impact on these U.S. oil and gas companies. Uh, often, I think the same companies, that's fair to say, right? They're, they're usually the same? That's absolutely right. They, as you noted, rely on junk bonds in many cases, or they make up a large portion of the junk bonds. This is not my area of expertise, but I understand that this could put a lot of pressure on the U.S. economy because... Oil is a pretty big player in our economy, and uh, there could be some bankruptcies resulting. So what do you think the outcome could be here? So the basic theory here, and, and well, it's going to be a very testable theory because we're going to find out over the next several weeks whether this is true or not. Right. Whether or not Russia intended it or not. Exactly. Exactly. A controlled experiment, which might be a little bit out of control. In short, what you have is if oil prices collapse to a level which is below the break-even cost uh, uh, for shale drillers, the marginal cost of production for shale drillers, which is you know probably somewhere between thirty to fifty dollars uh, per barrel for most uh, for most shale operations in the United States, if prices fall below that, then a significant uh, amount of shale shale drillers will either need to find significant new sources of finance. Uh, to continue servicing their existing debt. So they're going to have to continue servicing debt and find new debt to bring on to make up for the fact that they're no longer cash flow positive, or they're going to go into bankruptcy. And the former looks to be quite unlikely, particularly 
if uh, the overall financial conditions in the market are not normal, but in fact, quite chaotic as they are today, right? We've got high volatility in the market. We've got days where where you know the asset prices, the price of of equities and 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 bonds, and critically of of high yield credit, uh, so called junk bonds, are all over the place. And so, what you have is a situation in which it may be very very difficult for shale drillers to continue to finance themselves, especially for the shale drillers with relatively weak balance sheets and uh, and weak financial positions overall. Now, if you get those bankruptcies, the question is, do they go completely out of business and just you know? wrap up things and, and head home, or do they get acquired by healthier independent shale, uh, shale producers with, with healthier balance sheets, as well as by oil majors, the, the ones you've heard about, of course, Chevron, Exxon, uh, Shell, BP, etc. Might they see an opportunity uh, to put capital to work and snatch up some of these bankrupt or nearly bankrupt shale drillers at a deep discount? Okay, so let's bring in the clean energy piece here, because low oil is not usually good for other kinds of fuels that want to compete with oil, cleaner types of fuels like biofuels and electric vehicles. So walk me through what you're seeing on how those industries could be affected by this oil price turmoil. So this oil price collapse is going to have a couple of really interesting and in some cases countervailing impacts. So let's walk through the first one, just the collapse in the oil price itself. Collapse in the oil price, as, as we were discussing earlier, is not good for the uh, uh, price of assets directly involved in oil exploration. So like we said, distressed shale drillers are going to be at a deep discount in the market and could be acquired by healthier players. But similarly, think about companies that are alternatives to oil, like uh, biofuels or like everything associated with electric vehicles. Their healthiest situation, they're most competitive, for example, in a world of high oil prices because they want to replace oil in the market. And so they're most attractive uh, at a time when oil prices are high, gasoline prices are high. And when it's time to go buy a car, you might say to yourself, huh, I think I'll buy an electric car instead of a car running on this super expensive gasoline or diesel. So in a time of low oil prices, there may also be uh, a deep discount or a significant discount to the price of assets that are associated with replacing oil, the assets which are in the oil alternative space. Right. So a low oil price means that the alternatives look relatively less economically appealing. Those oil prices are so good that you know people aren't compelled to try an alternative like, say, electricity. And I think that's why we've probably seen the last couple of days uh, stocks like Tesla's, Neo out of China, as well as Geely, these EV makers all take a hit. Also on the EV front, people are looking at Tesla and how its supply chain can be affected by the coronavirus, specifically with supply chains in China and sales in China, given this economic slowdown. And I will also add that I was in Detroit recently, where Mary Barra, the head of General Motors, noted that they had a line of sight on their supply chain through the end of March. This may have changed slightly, but the end of March is not that far away. And so how you make cars and how will they push specifically into their new EV strategy that they announced if they don't even have the parts to make the cars that they need to make. So this ripples and this ripples throughout the economy and throughout the clean tech and energy sectors in so many ways. It's so true. And if we know one thing from studying the oil price collapses of the past, it's that we know um, that 
people start buying much more fuel intensive uh, vehicles in times of low oil prices, consumers especially. So the sales of SUVs uh, and of and of relatively larger and more fuel inefficient vehicles is likely to surge if these low oil prices persist. However, economists are noting that consumer confidence may just be generally down at this time. People aren't moving around as much. They're not making big purchases. They're watching what else is happening in the economy in light of the coronavirus. And so what was traditionally good for consumers, these low oil prices, may not actually be that much of an advantage just given where the consumer mindset is at right now. That's so true. Let's set that aside for a second. So that's oil. Now, what's also very interesting is, as we noted, oil and gas producers are often the same because gas is oftentimes produced from the very same reservoirs from which oil is produced. And in fact, in chasing the production of shale oil in the United States, we've gotten a lot of shale gas unintentionally, almost as a byproduct. It's cheaper uh, on a per unit of energy basis. And so it's not the first thing that's targeted. Instead, oil is targeted, but gas comes out as a byproduct. So if a lot of the gas production, the natural gas production in the United States is produced by virtue of the fact that we're trying to produce oil, if a bunch of shale drillers, let's say, were to go out of business or if oil prices are so low that a lot of shale oil operations are no longer economic to run, it could also result in a decrease in natural gas production in the U.S., Now that, all things being equal, if you suddenly take a bunch of natural gas supply off the market, that could push up natural gas prices. And what that means is that in the power sector, um, you could have a situation in which solar and wind and other renewable and clean energy technologies suddenly become more competitive against now slightly more expensive natural gas. So you could have these weird countervailing effects where oil alternatives are less valuable in a world of low oil prices, but clean energy in the power sector is more competitive versus natural gas because natural gas prices are going up. Interesting. Okay. I know you talked a moment ago about these big oil majors maybe scooping up some of the U.S. shale oil companies. How could this affect, do you think, their investments in clean tech companies? That goes for EV companies and surrounding software suppliers that they've already been investing in. Um, Anything else in clean tech? Is there anything about this oil price uh, change that you think would promote more investment in those clean tech solutions from the oil majors? Absolutely. Um, And here, I think, much depends on uh, not even the reality of how long these low oil prices last, but the perception of how long they're going to last. So, for example, if uh, if oil company executives and the decision-making uh, uh, entities that are in charge of the venture capital uh, arms of these of these oil companies believe that it's going to be a V-shaped recovery where we have low prices for a short period of time, maybe three to six months, and then prices bounce back up, let's say, Saudi Arabia and Russia work things out and come back to the table with a new supply cut agreement and prices go back up. If they believe that to be the the likely future, then they might invest most of their capital in these distressed shale companies because they can get oil and gas assets on the cheap at a deep discount, which will be worth much, much more in less than even a year's time. On the contrary, if they believe that this is more likely to be an L-shaped recovery, or in other words, a lower for longer scenario where these low prices are here to stay for quite some time, 
Um, then the anticipated return on investment in oil and gas assets is not as high as it has been assumed to be in the past at, at a different prevailing price level. And that may instead augur for investment in clean energy assets, which traditionally have had stable, predictable revenues, uh, especially in the power sector with PPAs, you know, power purchase agreements and the like for, for wind and for solar. Um, but they've been less... Uh, uh, less volatile returns, but also lower returns overall. So that's, in, in the past, been less attractive for oil companies. But now that may be very attractive because they're facing a world of great uncertainty and volatility for oil prices. They're expecting lower oil prices on average over the long run. And so they may be more willing to invest in these uh, capital-intensive upfront projects like solar and wind, but which offer predictable, stable uh, uh, and attractive returns for decades out. Um, on the other hand, uh, they, you know, they may also uh, simply not be able to access the capital markets and be able to take on the debt which is needed to make large-scale investments in alternatives. And so you may see them in kind of a hunker-down mentality uh, in which they invest only in those technologies which are viewed as most core to their existing business model. So in this scenario, they might double down and uh, and invest only in things like hydrogen, carbon capture and storage and direct offshoots of their existing business model and retrench a little bit from exploring uh, playing in different parts of the energy business, like Shell has done experimenting with even being exposed a bit to the retail power sector and things like that. So there are a number of different kind of scenarios for how they might take advantage of this low oil price environment, or rather respond to this low oil price environment in order to execute their energy diversification strategies. And I don't think it'll be one size fits all across the sector either. I think individual companies, their own you know, pre-existing diversification strategies, as well as their strengths and weaknesses and their financial position, that will help to determine what sorts of investments they make in this environment where all sorts of assets are going to be repriced, not just oil assets, but also clean energy assets as well. Wow. Okay. So there's a lot going on there. But what's interesting to me and what really stood out is that in this topsy-turvy world, you know, in the past where you wanted high oil prices to support clean tech solutions, specifically in the transportation realm, things like electric vehicles in particular, that high oil price made them more competitive. In today's world, because of the way people are trying to read the future and read the tea leaves and place their bets on the most robust future investments, a low oil price could actually bring some of the oil majors further into the clean tech sector depending on how they, you know, see this playing out. Is that right? That's absolutely right. And there's one other thing worth mentioning as well, which is actually really fundamental to this outlook, which is the fact that many of the uh, clean energy sectors, the clean energy markets that they're going to be looking to expand into are policy supported or have policies at their core, much more so than the oil market. And so if they are looking for perhaps less over lucrative overall, but more stable and predictable investments and returns on, for, on that investment, they might actually start looking to much more policy intensive markets like, let's say, biofuels in the United States. Even if you get cheaper oil, it may not actually impact the uh, the return prospects for biofuel investments that much because so much of the biofuel market is underpinned by, at the national level, the renewable fuel standard. And in certain states like California, 
uh, it has the low carbon fuel standard, which offers uh, carbon credits of around $200 per ton of CO2 avoided through advanced biofuels in California's market. So it may look to those and sort of say, look, we know that climate change is going to get worse. We know policymakers, regardless of the economic downturn, are going to try to continue to um, implement more robust climate policies. And so why don't we take this as an opportunity uh, to acquire some assets in some of those areas and begin to have more market share uh, in some of those markets, which are going to grow as a result of climate policy. Policy can't be avoided here. We talk about this oftentimes just in financial terms, but we have to remember that in the background are the, you know, the prevailing winds provided by policymakers. The last thing I want to touch on are the politics at play here. Just in recent days, we've heard that the Trump administration may be considering some kind of support measure or bailout, if you will, for U.S. oil and gas companies that are feeling the pinch. Uh, what is your read on that? We don't know the details of this yet or how it will rank among other priorities for the administration in terms of helping, say, workers affected by the coronavirus. But if this does become real, do you think it is necessary? And what kind of impacts do you think such a bailout of sorts could could have? Yeah, it's a really interesting place to be, first of all, if you just consider that only a year ago, we were uh, we were all talking about, um, oh, the, the price of oil is ticking upwards again. How long do you think it will be uh, until President Trump tweets at OPEC and warns them about rising prices and to do something about rising prices? Uh, so in, in only a year, we've changed uh, back into a, a world in which perhaps we actually like OPEC uh, to function a little bit. Um, and perhaps we even like cartel behavior sometimes when it helps to keep prices stable. And this is, of course, indicative of some of a broader point and a, a broader structural point, which is the fact that the United States now uh, produces just about uh, the amount of oil that it consumes, but it's exporting a lot of oil, it's importing a lot of oil. And so it, it's on both sides of this. It's a major consumer. It's one of the world's largest consumers, and it's one of the world's largest producers. In fact, the world's largest producer of oil. So the, the overall wealth effect here is that the United States actually takes a macro wealth hit from low oil prices. But uh, the effects therein are, are really complicated. And on a state-by-state -state basis, certainly parts of New England will benefit overall from low oil prices. And oil-producing states and oil-producing regions like Texas, Louisiana, New Mexico, Colorado, North Dakota, Pennsylvania, Ohio, they're going to take a net hit from all of this. Those sound like Trump strongholds, or at least areas where he's had support in the past. Exactly. And I've even surmised that there may be some political pressure, formally or informally, from the White House on oil majors or those that are uh, with healthy balance sheets to snatch up and, and acquire some of these bankrupt shale drillers so as to minimize the, uh, the economic fallout from, you know, from, from them being financially distressed. Uh, and we see it also in these different bailout proposals, proposals to purchase oil uh, off the market, excess oil off the market at low prices and put it in the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. I mean, ultimately, you just have to hope that whatever the decision is that's made, it's made from a perspective of the national interest and the strategic national interest um, and not by just, you know, industry lobbies. Um, if it makes sense to fill up on uh, the fill up the Strategic Petroleum Reserve when oil is super cheap, so be it. But let's make that decision, of course, uh, on the merits and uh, with the national interest in mind. Well, I think there's a lot of 
folks who are in the clean energy industry and in the climate community who are like, wait a minute, we get railed upon for any kind of, you know, federal policy support, things like tax credits. And here we are. America is the largest oil exporter in the world and one dip in prices and they're offering them some new financial scheme or some new purchasing program or something like that. Hey, that's such a double standard, you know, so I think it gets a lot of people riled up. Not to mention, clean energy companies will also feel the pain of this coronavirus outbreak. We've talked about the EV companies, but renewable energy companies will feel the pinch in their supply chains, too. Yeah, I think this oil price collapse is going to um, reveal a lot of uh, uh, poorly hidden truths or at least uh, unspoken truths about the importance of stable oil prices, regardless of whether they're high or low, the, the importance of avoiding volatility, uh, about America's conflicted identity as both an oil uh, producer and a major oil consumer, and of course about the U.S. industrial policy in the energy sector uh, and the way we wield that industrial policy. Super interesting. Well, David, thank you so much for helping us uh, understand this all a little bit better. Really appreciate your time. Julie, it's a pleasure. Thank you very much. And that's our show. Stay safe and healthy out there, everyone. And if you find yourself with a little more time on your hands and and you're scrolling the web as you avoid public places, please remember to subscribe to Political Climate and leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. That's it for now. Until next week.